With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Toward the end of 1944, it was clear to everyone in Europe that Germany was losing the Second World War. Low on fuel, munitions, and morale, the ability of the rogue nation was slipping by the hour. Still, with six million men under arms, Hitler burned with a passion for one more mad drive into the Allied lines. And so it was that in December of 1944, with the Russians closing in from the east and the Allies chipping away at the Western Front, the Nazis made their move. 600,000 Germans in 29 divisions with 11 armored panzer divisions surged into the Allied front. It was the setting for total Allied defeat. But Hitler had failed to calculate the most important element of all. He could count the thousands of guns, the tons of munitions, and the hundreds of tanks, but he could never grasp the unfailing courage and valor of the American fighting man. Douglas Dillard was a paratrooper in the 551st Airborne Division in December of 1944. He and 500,000 other Americans could scarcely have foreseen the numbing hammer blow that was about to fall upon them. For the paratroopers, just staying alive in the brutal winter cold was battle enough. We had arrived in Lyon, France, on trains that, that brought us up from southern France. And we were there for about two weeks, maybe ten days. And I was prepared to get suited up and go to Paris the next day for a 24-hour pass. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, we were awakened by the charge quarters to go to the, to the orderly room, and the company commander said the front has... Uh, been penetrated by German forces. Uh, no one really knows where the front is, and we must uh, get the troops up early, get a basic load of ammunition, our combat gear, and be ready to leave on transportation uh, by the break of dawn. And that occurred. We loaded on two-and-a-half-ton trucks. It's about 30 men to a truck, and the bed of the truck was covered with five-gallon uh, gasoline cans are called jerry cans. So you really couldn't put your feet down on the bed. The legs were extended out over those cans. It was made it more uncomfortable. And we left uh, at, at daybreak and headed up to Belgium. And it was rather uneventful until the middle of the afternoon, and we arrived in a village uh, the named Hutton. And we could hear small arms fire and artillery going off in the truck stop. And the, one of the officers came back and said, there's SS attacking from the other side of the village, and we're not going to be able to go through. We'll have to turn around. So we're in those narrow roads, and uh, the two-and-a-half-ton trucks each had a trailer, and it was very difficult, but the drivers were able to get the vehicles turned around. And we took a different route into Belgium, we drove all night, and in the wee hours of the next morning, pulled into an area around Stur, Belgium, and were immediately attached to the 30th Infantry Division. It was engaged in a very hot contest around Stumont, and they had hundreds of casualties already in the woods. Uh, we remained in uh, direct support of the 30th Infantry Division for a couple of days, and then we were uh, told that we were going to uh, attack a village 
because the 30th Division had so many casualties that they, they had to get them out, and the weather was beginning to deteriorate. So on Christmas Eve, we uh, marched over to an area, and we were to uh, cross about 1,500 feet parallel to the front line and then make an, an abrupt right turn and attack the village. And as we uh, deployed and started to march in the attack position, we suddenly were stopped and turned around and told we're not going, we're going back to our bivouac. And the next day we learned that the 30th Division thought we were a regiment of 3,000 rather than a battalion of about 600. And uh, that was the reason that mission was canceled. We're out in the elements the whole time. Everyone knew it was Christmas, but uh, there was really not much joy because by that time we'd already been out in the elements for uh, over a week and uh, sleeping in a foxhole just wrapped up with a blanket and a shelter half is you know not very comfortable. And uh, it began to to show on the, the morale of the troops uh, because the exposure, I think, was beginning to have a, an impact. So the joy of Christmas was there, but it was not really a celebration. It was a, a recognition more than anything. In the bivouac area, I used to misnomer. I should have set a slip trench rather than a foxhole because we dug in to just get below the surface of the ground, and you could stretch out and roll up in your pot in uh, the shelter half. We didn't have ponchos at that time, shelter house, in a blanket. And uh, that was just before the, the weather had gotten so uh, uh, cold that you could still dig a few inches in the ground. Uh, regarding uh, the foxholes, in some cases, uh, German positions were overtaken, and there were they really were foxholes that you could get in maybe two to three feet below the, the surface. Or they maybe they were th- uh, three feet deep and timber had been placed across the top of them in order to absorb the shell fragments. Because if you're just in a hole with no cover, you're still subject to uh, fragments from mortars and, uh, and artillery shells. In other cases, efforts were made to dig a hole, but by the time we started the attack on 30 January, that was practically impossible. What one uh, eventually did was scoop out a hole in the snow. And if you could find any uh, uh, timbers or any material of that sort, you'd try and, and prop it up so that it would absorb some of the, the sh- fragments from any shells that were exploding in the trees. Of course, uh, We've already mentioned that we came up from southern France, so we were still essentially lightly uh, clothed. And most of us uh, either wore the jumpsuit or the uh, wool shirt and trousers. I fortunately had been able to barter with one of the tankers and was able to secure a tanker suit. And the tanker suit is a pair of, of uh, like coveralls with suspenders that are padded in a matching jacket that, that goes over it that has a wool padding inside it. It was, it was very warm, but confining as well. I had the, the uh, tanker suit, the tanker jacket, and the mackinac over that. And underneath all of it, the regular wool shirt and trousers and a uh, wool knit cap, steel helmet. And I do not remember having gloves and the other people uh, made do as best they could. Uh, some were still wearing those cotton jumpsuits. And uh, some had uh, managed to find some wool underwear. And the I think that what had happened, the major move uh, on the, the part of logistics was to open the, the port of Antwerp so that ships could come in and it would really shorten the, the logistic line from the English Channel into Belgium. And we were caught so short with that surprise uh, in, uh, incursion into Belgium that I'm sure many units did not receive their winter gear uh, in time uh, to have it uh, as we moved up and were engaged on the front. 
So uh, during that period of time, we did not get any additional clothing. We should have had uh, uh, galoshers or overshoes. Uh, we should have had heavier wool clothes, uh, including uh, overcoats. And some of the men that did have overcoats, as has been noted in our history, uh, were ordered to uh, strip them off and leave them so that we could move fast. And historically, during that campaign, the 501 had a, a during that three-day period had a, a, a reputation of being fast-moving, and in that way, quite often the flanks between the 505 on the left and the 517th on the right, there was not contact because we were moving fast, and eventually we paid for it with the uh, the frostbite cases. Uh, over a period of time, that cold just permeates the body, regardless of how warmly clothed you are, because uh, we're moving, we were in constant firefight for three and a half days. And the, the perspiration that you're working up, it cools, and it, it really dampens the inner clothing. And you can never overcome that. And if you get that chill on your back, you'll never be warm until you completely change clothes and get in a warm environment. And I think that was true for uh, practically all of our troopers. I think the main uh, uh, influence in perking up morale is that we had, had uh, finally been told that we're going into the counterattack after we did the raid at Norfontaine. That uh, after that raid on the 27th, the morale was sky high. You know, we could we could beat anybody. And we were just invincible and we were ready to take on the rest of the German army. And then there's a, a break. So whenever that happens, you know, the soldier gets uh, uh, a little loose, uh, loose and, uh, and the inactivity is going to cause problems of drop of morale. And as soon as we were told that we we're going to go on a counterattack on the third, the morale began to zoom. At last, you know, we we're going to get moving. And, uh, and get out of this, uh, this cold environment because we felt that we were going to uh, uh, be very successful in rolling the Germans back across the Somme, and we then would be able to get into a, uh, a warm environment and get some hot food and a change of clothes. As it turned out, from that morning on the 3rd until the, the night of the 7th, the battalion was never in the reserve. It was in a constant uh, a firefight with very small breaks between engagements. And that really kept the adrenaline flowing. And that's, I think, the, what kept the, uh, the, uh, the troopers going is that uh, they had a mission to uh, accomplish. Uh, they were very proud of their unit. They had very high morale. And... Uh, we could see the, although it had uh, cost the unit a lot of casualties, we were accomplishing our mission, and there's a great sense of pride there. We're across phase line two, and uh, you're ready to go into Russian ball in spite of the casualties that we had. The 5th and 6th of January, we had moved into the area there uh, on the, the uh, Hill opposing Rochenval, and Lieutenant Booth had assumed command of the company. And he came down to me. I was uh, trying to dig in. and said he was going to battalion, and I was the senior person left in the company, and that there were two officers coming down and to just tell them to, to dig in until he got back and he would make their assignments. It was Lieutenant Kenley and a Lieutenant Dahl, and they were came out of the quartermaster. And the first thing they told me is we we're really eager to get a combat entry badge. And I said, well, after today, or rather after tomorrow, we'll see how eager you are. And uh, I, I showed them an area near me to, to scoop out some snow and try and get uh, down in case we start getting some more shelling. And a patrol had just come back from down below, and they had identified the bridge, and uh, the the general conversation around the GIs there is that if that's a bridge, we can anticipate the Germans really resisting because uh, that's their exit, their access route over the Somme. 
And the the feeling then as we talk to each other is that, you know, the, the next attack is going to be very, very deadly and probably more costly than what we've already been through since the 3rd of January. And that afternoon, Lieutenant Booth came back, and he got the officers together, and they began uh, planning the attack for the next day. Uh, Roy McCraw, the first sergeant of A Company, had just come back from the aid station. On the 3rd of January, when we uh, started in the second phase of the attack, we had crossed an open field, and as uh, we came out of the woods to attack across that open terrain, I could see a tank off to my left and, and hundreds of Germans digging in along the line that we were attacking. And I thought to myself, God, this is absolutely crazy that we we're going to be able to accomplish this. And uh, Captain Dalton, I was the communication sergeant, so I was with the company command group. Uh, he and I, the first sergeant, and the uh, liaison officer, and we started out across that field, and we got about in the middle of the field, and an 88 tank round exploded right in front of us. If we'd been 10 feet further, we'd probably all been killed. But it knocked everyone down, and as we shook our head and looked around, Captain Dalton was lying down there. So we pulled him back. We got a medic, and he was hauled off the field. And uh, Sergeant McGraw had hurt his back because we had trouble under that fire. We were still getting machine gun fire and sporadic uh, tank rounds being fired directly in our position. So we were moving and dragging and moving, and he hurt his back. So that night he went in the aid station. So when he came back that day on the, the night of the, the afternoon of the 6th, he went around and checked all the troops, and by that time, both of my feet were completely numb up to my knees. I, I, I couldn't even stand up. And uh, Roy said, you got to go to the aid station. You know, if you don't go, you're going to lose your feet. And the reason that happened to me the first day, as we started the attack, we came down the very steep hill from Bas Badu, made a right turn and started up a, a kind of a, a meadow to get in our attack position, and there was a stream right in the middle of that uh, meadow. And as I started to jump across the stream, a mortar round landed right in front of me, and I misjudged and fell right in the stream. So my clothes and my feet were completely wet. And uh, we kept moving. I didn't have a chance to uh, change, and uh, the second night, one of the troopers did remove his boots, but he couldn't get them back on. I said, I'm not going to do that. And uh, the night I was evacuated, I still had the same boots and, and, uh, and uh, wet socks that I'd had that first morning when we started. And that directly contributed to my case. Fortunately, I caught it in time, and after uh, four weeks in the hospital in England, uh, I was released for duty and went back enjoying the 82nd. So I credit Roy McGraw really with saving my life that night because I would have been uh, right with Lieutenant Booth. And when he stepped around that curve and that MG-42 raked him from one one end to the other, I, I probably would have been caught up in it also. I believe from the the, the standpoint of surviving, that I was really amazed that uh, for the extended period of time that we had been out in that environment and had been subjected uh, almost hourly to uh, showers of either mortar or shells and being constantly in a small arms engagement that, in my case, that I was still standing. And I... Uh, uh, once again had that feeling that I've heard echoed time and time again that it's the guy on the right and left that's going to get hit, not me. And I think that we even today, I, in the back of my mind, I still have that feeling. So uh, uh, that was an impression as, you know, how can we still be here and, and be going, plodding through the snow and under these uh, conditions and seeing all the casualties uh, some of the bodies stacked up and others that were wounded that we could not get them out. And that was the bad part of it. I mean, uh, combat is combat. But when you see someone that has been disabled and you don't know uh, where to take them 
and you have no means of, evacu- of uh, evacuating them at that time. And with those elements, you know they're going to freeze to death. So that was the, the, the downside of that. And I guess, one, again, in the back of one's mind, uh, you would think, well, that may be me next. After all that Douglas Dillard had seen and experienced, he was becoming changed, hardened. He would now try to strip the Reich of any dignity it had left. We caught a German uh, there in that field, and we were all really infuriated, and I looked at the guy, and he had a, a breast full of ribbons on his tunic. And I don't know why I did it, and I still have them today, but I reached up and grabbed those ribbons and just ripped them off his uniform and stuck them in my pocket. And why I did it, I still don't know. But there was never any thought in my mind of shooting him. It's a furthest uh, thought because uh, <clears throat> we weren't raised that way, but uh, in, in a rage of passion, in a firefight, then uh, you would do it. And the day that uh, Lieutenant Durkee uh, led that bayonet attack, I was right with him. Although I had a submachine gun and the barrel was already frozen, I could not uh, even uh, move the uh, receiver. So I just slung it on my back and pulled out my forty-five and cleared it and, and went right along with Durkee. And I think that's the worst scene that I, I can, uh, can recall. And I often refer people to the apocalypse about the Vietnam War. That's the scene I remember with the Durkee. He killed that first guy with a butt stroke from his rifle and just moved right up through that uh, uh, entrenchment. They were sort of dug in a ro- in row behind each other. And as they tried to get up out of the foxhole, he killed them. And they just fall back in, in that freezing weather. You could see the vapor forming from the breath coming, the warmth coming out of their body. And uh, that's still very clear in my mind. So again, you know, the thought is, you know, better he than me. Durkee stands out because he was always a very demanding and dynamic uh, platoon leader. And uh, the day that I was with him there and he ordered the charge, I mean, that was really a demonstration of leadership and, and courage that motivated everybody to get on with the, the task at hand. And he, he really should have been awarded at least a Distinguished Service Cross for that, which, incidentally, he did earn in Korea doing the same thing with a bayonet attack. Richard Durkee was a first lieutenant in the 551st and was Dillard's commanding officer. Perhaps his most remarkable moment in the war was the desperate action of January 4, 1945. With weapons frozen and hope waning, Durkee ordered that most frenzied of infantry tactics, the bayonet attack. It was on uh, January 4th that we had launched our uh, initial uh, advance, and uh, we had a position where uh, they were Concentrate. The enemy was concentrating a considerable amount of fire upon our right flank of our battalion, and so uh, we uh, launched an attack from the uh, right and left onto the German position. And uh, when we uh, were eventually uh, within a hundred yards of the Germans in their position, we noticed that over on the right that the other platoon, the other Part of the A Company had uh, tacked, but they were going into the rear of the, the German position, so we couldn't fire. And so I told told the men to put their bayonets on their weapon, fix bayonets, and I said, let's go. And we uh, attacked with our bayonets because we couldn't shoot our weapons any longer. And there's something like uh, 20, 30 German positions, Germans that were bayoneted and and killed in their foxholes. For three days and uh, approximately three nights, we just pushed and pushed. We uh, attacked and attacked and attacked. We wouldn't gain probably at 100, 200 yards, but we'd keep on pushing all the time, and we didn't have, we didn't, uh, have uh, time to sleep. But Durkee was about to experience the fiercest combat of his long career. 
It was the 7th of January, 1945, the middle of the ferocious Battle of the Bulge, and he was leading a small patrol to reconnoiter the target for the following day. The evening before attack at Rockville on the 7th, uh, as I said before, we led, uh, I led an uh, intelligent patrol, a combat patrol, to Rockville. And uh, as we approached the town and got near there, I could hear, I could hear the Germans. I couldn't see them because it was dark and it was uh, approximately 5.30 in the evening. But I could uh, hear the sounds and I knew exactly what they were doing. They were digging in and they were placing up their machine guns. And uh, by the time I got to, uh, back to the unit and reported to my uh, S2 officer, I told them that uh, Rockavell was going to be really defended. They're going to really defend Rockavell. And they're setting up machine guns there and they're, they're going to have fields of fire. It's unbelievable and that uh, it will be a tough, tough mission to take that town. Uh, the regimental, the battalion commander tried to get the attack called off. Uh, he said we wasn't uh, uh, prepared to do it because of uh, uh, ammunition difficulties, supplying ammunition, uh, the morale of the men, but uh, I will want to uh, uh, say one thing that I wasn't exactly uh, approving this approach that he had. I, I think that we could, we, if we had the order to attack, we should attack. Our platoon was supposed to, we divided our company into two platoons. We had lost so many men, we, our three platoons, it wasn't feasible any longer, so we uh, divided up the uh, company strength to two platoons. I took one, and uh, a lieutenant uh, took uh, another. And uh, he was told to uh, lead the way up toward the uh, town of Rockville and pick up uh, several machine guns that was going to support him and continue on the attack, and we would follow him in our platoon. But it didn't work that way because uh, he took the wrong way up there and uh, I saw that he took the wrong route and I informed the company commander of the fact and the company commander says, okay, let him stay there and you follow your right uh, approach that you're going to take. And so uh, we led the attack. And... Uh, The men probably uh, knew that they were going to die, and they just said, uh, that's it. We got to do it anyway. And they uh, moved on out. And my two scouts, with uh, first and I, and two other officers that I just got assigned to from uh, the quartermaster, Dahl and another officer, were immediately killed. My two scouts got uh, halfway up to the ridge toward Rockavell, and uh, the rest of the platoon started getting uh, shot at and dying like flies. And uh, I moved on up, and knocked, uh, me and the bazooka man knocked out one machine gun. Then we continued on up, and... Um, got up to a wall that was just in front of the town. And I said, now we got it, we got it made. And I looked back over to my rear and I looked back and I didn't see my men. And I wonder what the heck happened to the men? I thought they were following me. And then I saw my runner, Casanova, and I yelled to him to send up the men. And what happened was that they, we had made a little turn in the road, a bend in the road and uh, the men had got that bend and that uh, the two German machine guns concentrated on the exact spot where they were going to go across the bend and uh, fired. And uh, as soon as they got there, they were killed. And uh, he yelled back and told me, he said, they're all dead, sir. And I said, the bazooka man, I says, oh, boy, I says, we've had it. 
but uh, I'll cover you. You get on back there to the rear. So he said, yes, sir, and he started crawling back to the rear, and all at once he got tired, I guess. He got up to run, and he uh, got hit several hundred times, I think, and uh, fell dead, of course. And so I crawled around to the bend, and I saw the piles of dead bodies at the turn in the bend of the road. And I knew then that uh, it, was, it was just uh, decimated. So I got back. In the meantime, the uh, two other companies of uh, the 551 attacked from the, uh, the uh, south side, and uh, they took Rockville. And I went and set up a, a aid station for my wounded and got the wounded men back and uh, put them about five yards apart, about 16, 20 wounded. The rest were dead. And uh, just about the time we were getting our stretcher bearers was coming up from the 517th, the uh, Germans launched a Weber attack artillery and killed about nine of the other 18 that were wounded. And uh, Finally, that led up. Then I got the wounded in the truck and took them to the 517th uh, Regimental Aid Station. Left them off, and they came out back. And uh, the battalion commander called me on the radio and asked if I could uh, bring up a bunch of men to be uh, ready to counterattack. The German lost a counterattack on the south side of Rockville. And I said, yes, sir. So I went over to my men, and uh, they were just sitting around laying there asleep, and I asked if they'd go back up to the front lines with me, and they said, yes, yes, sir. And they, we took off to the front lines and uh, spent the night up there defending the uh, west side of, uh, the east side of Rockville. Uh The eight men... I still remember their names, and uh, they were uh, really eight brave soldiers. We uh, applied our, our uh, foxholes up there with the German uh, dead German bodies to keep the wind off us, and we the Germans launched a counterattack at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and we fought that off. And fortunately, we didn't lose any more men, and that was the last bit of combat we had with the 551. The weather soon turned, and the troops would have Allied air support. But the memories would remain with those men forever, those very special men of the 551st. Well, I think the battle of the Bulge probably would have been uh, over with uh, probably by the 15th, of uh, January completely uh, if the weather had not intervened and, and restricted our Air Force and our observation and our, the brutality of our uh, condition of uh, the troops. Uh, but uh, the weather was so darn uh, terrible that you, could, you couldn't... Uh, uh, operate like you would uh, normally uh, militarily. You you couldn't get the men to to push forward as fast as you needed to push forward and to make a successful attack. Uh, they they uh, slipped and sl and uh, uh, had uh, a terrible time even carrying their gear, carrying their mortars and their machine guns. Uh, the weather was uh, utterly terrible. I think that uh, perhaps I'd like to say something about the mental attitude of the soldier. The uh, 551 was made up of old soldiers. These were old army soldiers, most of them. They had served in Panama during the later 30s. Uh, 
And uh, uh, perhaps all the training they got really uh, uh, gave them the fortitude to be the uh, soldiers of the bulge and and was and they were able to uh, fight the way they did, regardless of the condition of the environment and the uh, climate. That uh, they still could take orders and no argument whatsoever, and they did their job and they did it bravely and courage, courageously because they were mentally supported, mentally uh, uh, conditioned to uh, withstand those hardships. But it's awful wonderful to, for an officer to tell the men, you do this, and realizing that he knows he's going to die, the chances are he's going to die, to do it. But they do it with a smile on their face. And that attitude you just can only see an American soldier. The following is an interview with U.S. Army veteran Bob Pillar. He tells of his combat experiences in Europe and the pain of trying to remember Thanksgiving and Christmas under these horrific conditions. We went to uh, we went to England. I believe it was in October of 1944. We went uh, to over to France and Belgium in uh, very early November of 1944. So you guys were, in terms of combat, you were pretty green? Yes. Okay. Can you talk about then that first, first brush with combat? Well, uh, as we were approaching the front and we bivouacked in an area that was on the French side of the, France, uh, of the border between Belgium and France, and we could hear the guns in the, in the distance, and uh, not small arms fire, but the, the howitzers, and it, uh, you got kind of a rush of adrenaline out of it, like you would if you were going into a football game before the game started and you were running onto the field. It, you, you just, you know, something big is going to be happening and I want to be a part of it. Of course, when you got into it, it was a lot different. You, uh, but uh, we were there for a couple of days, as I recall, and then we finally moved into the front to relieve the 102nd Cavalry. I believe they were uh, in the 9th Armored Division. We moved in there at night on the 9th of November. And uh, one of the things that I recall very vividly that we hadn't any more than really gotten settled, hadn't located the hole that we were going to occupy. The 102nd Cavalry had positions already in place, but we hadn't been there very long when we heard a loudspeaker from the other side from the German lines, and it, they played music. They were playing American music. And then a voice came on in perfect English that said, Welcome, uh, Company F, 395th Infantry. I mean, they, they knew who we were and what we were doing, and that, that amazed me. And then they'd play a little bit more music, and then they g gave us an opportunity to end the war, that we could give ourselves up and we would be uh, treated well, fed well, and we wouldn't have to go through everything that was going to come. And in case you need something to help you make up your mind, then they started a terrible artillery barrage. And they just blasted us for, it seemed like hours, but I bet you it probably didn't last any longer than maybe 15 minutes. And then throughout that night, they would send an additional round over occasionally to help us think about it. Well, obviously that just made everybody mad and seemingly want to get back at them. And uh, that was uh, after a few days, you were into the routine, doing uh, outpost duty at night, doing patrol work. All the patrol work, as I recall, was on a volunteer basis. I, I, I think most everybody volunteered. I know that I did volunteered to do patrol work. They were usually combat patrols, and we were trying to find out, our mission was to try to find out what was over there and what the strength was. And we kept, every time we came back, we said that, you know, we've run into resistance just about the time we crossed their wire. And uh, uh, 
and we could hear vehicles moving and things. So it sounded to us like maybe something was going on. Maybe, maybe it was just normal movement, and because we were so new that we were listening to everything. It's just like at night when you were doing outpost duty. Uh, you could see things that weren't there. You could hear things that weren't there. I mean, that was just part of getting accustomed to it. This point in the war, is that what you guys were thinking? We didn't know, really. Uh, we felt, at least I did, and most of the people around me felt that once the Germans were pushed back into Germany, that they were going to make a stand. That, that it was not going to be easy. We didn't think that that they were spent. At least I didn't. And uh, uh, they seemed to be fighting the war. We had artillery. Uh, uh, barrages. We had uh, these buzz bombs. A lot of them flew over our area, and uh, you had certain guys that became over anxious and tried to shoot those things down, which would be the dumbest thing that you could possibly do. If one ever landed right in our area, why well, it would have been devastating. We we did hear some that that uh, went into the ground behind us, and we could feel it and hear it. And uh, that probably sent the message better than anything. Now, here you are approaching the mid-December, heading for the Christmas season. Were you guys anticipating Christmas at that point, anticipating a celebration? Uh, Yes. Uh, My memories are just a little bit vague on this point, but I don't think we got a, a Thanksgiving dinner. And so we were looking forward to a big celebration at Christmas time, and uh, uh, we thought things were going to be fairly quiet, other than the artillery. We th- we thought that because uh, the bad weather was due to come, and that things would normally slow down. Okay, so the 16th. Uh, what happened on the 16th? Well. As I told you earlier, I had uh, had a small wound that didn't amount to much. At least I didn't think it did. I didn't even uh, – I don't recall any special treatment for it at all. I think the uh, medical – or medic assigned to our company may have put a little bandage on it. It wouldn't have been anything more than what you would have uh, uh, gotten out grubbing around hunting and maybe gotten pricked by a thorny bush. But uh, as it so happens, a couple of little pieces of shrapnel had gotten in there. That's what caused it. I didn't know it. I felt a sting, but I didn't know what it was. But that I got blood poisoning. And so I had to go back to a clearing station. And I, I might have been evacuated all the way back, but because I had uh, pretty advanced uh, blood, the red streaks running up my arm and a big lump under my arm, they gave me, had to stop and give me penicillin. So that probably was on the day that the bulge hit, the 99th Division, that I wasn't with my outfit that day. But it was either the next day, which would have been the 17th, or no later than the 18th of December, they came to the hospital, told us that everybody had to be evacuated. They had only means to carry out the wounded who couldn't walk, and most of those people were ones that had lost limbs or were more severely uh, injured. Anybody that could walk was going to go back up to the front. And uh, so we were immediately sent back up, and I rejoined my outfit just in time to begin the withdrawal back to the Elsenborn Ridge. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Okay, at Elsinborn Ridge, can you tell us, uh, kind of describe that, the fighting up there? What was that? Well, again, most of the fighting was artillery. We could see the Germans along the edge. We were more or less out in the open, at least as I recall it. We were in the open, and they were in the woods across from us. 
and we would only see them as they came out to the edge of the woods. And the artillery fire was coming from further back in the woods. And at that particular point, we were backed up, we were right on top of the Elsinborn Ridge. And I remember right behind our position, you went down a little slope and there was a road, and right on the other side of the road, our artillery was in place. So we were listening to our artillery night and day and getting blasted by the German artillery night and day, and, and it was it was kind of a nerve-wracking time. And then I remember it started snowing. And I don't know how much it snowed. I, it seemed to me like it was several feet. One thing nice about it, it was warmer down in a hole with snow than it is just laying out there on the top in a foxhole. That attack went on for days and days of trying to get down the ridge, Elsinborn Ridge? Yes. They just, uh, I think the worst of the, uh, our position held. And uh, I think uh, the rest of the 99th did a credible job of holding their positions as well. And I don't remember seeing tanks coming right at me, or I don't remember seeing a lot of infantrymen coming right at me. I'm sure there were other points in the front that that did happen. It happened to us in later battles during the war that I thought were worse than the Battle of the Bulge. That You know, they were just skirmishes, I guess. But uh, we, uh, we traded small arms fire from the Germans. They could see us. We could see them. We'd fire at them. It was not very effective. But it's just mostly the artillery. I do remember one day a, a, a German fighter strafing our positions, and he would he made several passes, and everybody was shooting at him. And some somebody further to our right or further south from us, not very far away, might have been a couple hundred yards, must have gotten a, a good hit because the plane went down right in front of us. And I remember the snow just going every place as this guy was plowing through it. He wasn't hurt because when he jumped out of the airplane, he started running. He was a little bit disoriented, as you could imagine. He started running to our lines first and then he realized that he was going the wrong direction turned around and started to go the other way and uh, several of our guys jumped up and ran out in the snow of course exposing themselves and uh, to capture him and they did they they caught him and they brought him back and it wasn't just being a prisoner they were looking for they had that guy stripped by the time we got him back to uh, our uh, command headquarters. One guy wanted his flight pants, another his jacket, another one his boots. I do remember taking, I was one of the ones that took him back. I wasn't one of the ones that ran out there in the field to take all of his clothes from him, but I, because of responsibility that I had, why well, I, I took him back to uh, company headquarters and sat there with him. Good, tall, good-looking blonde guy, and he wouldn't answer any questions, as you could imagine. They took his clothes for warmth? No, they just souvenirs. <laughs> By this time, you see, we're settled in. I mean, we're, we're old veterans now. We've been online for almost a month, or a little over a month. Now, you guys obviously work with them, as you said. I mean, so now, you know, there were these tremendous attacks. The, you know, apparently, you were really uh, outnumbered. What was your thought? I mean, were you guys thinking you were going to make it through this? I didn't think in those terms whether I was going to make it through. I really didn't. I just, you just thought about if they start coming, we're going to just do everything we can to stop them. And uh, we did some crazy things. I thought, our, I know our regimental intelligence came up one day and they wanted, uh, they wanted us to feel out the, the German positions in that area. And they sent a patrol out. And I was up there at the time they were doing the patrol briefing and these guys didn't have a chance. It, they were going to be exposed, even though they wore all the white gear. And the officer who from regiment who uh, from regimental intelligence who was directing this operation uh, would not let wouldn't listen to anybody who objected to it. And I remember we had a lieutenant Stewart. I've often wondered what happened to Lieutenant Stewart because he s told him. I, I don't know that this man was a major. He could have been a, uh, a uh, 
colonel. He could have been a captain, but I think he was a major. And, and Lieutenant Stewart didn't want to send the group, the patrol out, and uh, so he got relieved of his command right there. And uh, then uh, he said something to me, as I recall it, and I just I said, well, I think Lieutenant Stewart's right. And he asked me, you know, I shouldn't say anything more. I don't remember what he said, but uh, I didn't say anything more. It was something to the effect that I, I got the feeling that if I did, I would be on that patrol. And they went over, and every one, one of them, they got wiped out completely. It was a foregone conclusion that they would. But those are the kind of things that I uh, regretted more than anything. So let's talk about Christmas now. Do you remember where you were as Christmas Eve, Christmas approach? We were just on the uh, ridge outside of Elsinborn in the same position that we had uh, occupied when we came back. And uh, by this time, the snow was deeper, and we had accepted the fact that we were not going to have a Christmas dinner because they could barely get the rations that uh, we you know, needed to subsist on. They did drop some supplies to us, but as, the weather, you know, was not good. And we, for the first time, saw a little tracked vehicle. It was not a whole lot larger, maybe than a couple of Jeeps, had tracks on, and they worked very well in the snow, and they brought up more ammunition to us, and they did bring up K-rations. So we ate K-rations for Christmas, I don't remember that Christmas was any different than any other day. You were just out there, and and there wasn't anything you could do about it. You just had to wait for the next event or the next day and hope that uh, everything turned out all right. How did you stand in knowing that it was Christmas, Christmas Eve? Were you thinking thoughts of home? Oh, yeah. You, you uh, wondered what the folks at home would be doing. Did you find, I mean, was it a good thing to think about that? Was it a bad thing? What, what was it? Not good. That, you know, that would make you a person a little bit sad, but you got over it pretty quick. You know, everybody else was in the same position that you were in. There wasn't anything that anybody could do anything about it. You just, uh, I remember one artillery barrage, and the Germans would do things like this. If it was Christmas Day, you knew damn well you were going to get blasted. And they did blast it. And I, I remember saying to the, our company commander that I said, I wonder if this thing's ever going to end. And, and uh, that's about uh, the only time that I really got down low. And it didn't take long to get over that. When they were dropping the dude, were you any mail, any kind of acknowledgement of the day, packages? Uh, I, don't, I don't really remember whether we got anything... Uh, on Christmas Day, uh, see, we weren't very far from the initial attack at that particular point, and any transportation that could get through was being used for ammunition and what food supplies they could get to us. The weather. Now, first of all, can you just kind of paint the picture for us about how cold and how miserable it was, and apparently there was some clearing around Christmas time? Uh, yes, and uh, I can't pinpoint the the, the time, but uh, and whether it was on Christmas Day or before or a little while after, I do remember for the first time, and this was the first time that we had real hope that maybe this thing had been turned around because then the planes started flying again, and when the planes started flying again, things got better. The only bad experience that we had there, and I don't think this happened on the Battle of the Bulge, I mean, I don't think it happened uh, when we were on the Elsinborn Ridge. I know it didn't. At some other setting, I remember our planes uh, who were supposed to be – in fact, this may have been just very early, but it was before Christmas, I guess. Before we got to the Elsinborn Ridge, I think, the uh, our own planes attacked us. They missed their, their target. And uh, the – so much bad information, so much, so many rumors out, and the, there were rumors that the Germans were using American vehicles that they captured and uh, marking them with Red Cross markings to maneuver uh, troops. Whether any of that was true or not, I don't know. 
but we had some severely wounded people that we, that the medics were trying to evacuate, and the jeeps that we had were clearly marked with red crosses. They couldn't help but see them, I don't think. But that uh, was a bad afternoon. And I can't pinpoint the particular time of that, but I do know that it was very cold, and uh, it had rained before it snowed. And we... Uh, I think it had rained. Gosh, I'm having a hard time putting things together right? in proper sequence now. But uh, I just, a lot of the guys got frostbite and trench foot. I didn't. Some some outfits had overshoes. I never had a pair of overshoes that I remember. I don't know why I didn't get trench foot or frostbite, but I didn't. Uh, it, uh, I did have combat boots. I talked to uh, one of the fellows that uh, was here before who said he never did have combat. He said he had regular GI shoes and leggings. Well, we at least had combat boots, and that was better. It's not like anything was too great. As you guys were in there, I mean, you're in foxholes and you're in a very close quarters. Did you really know what was going on? You don't know the big picture, no. You just knew what was in front of you. And you could hear, as I recall, we could hear a lot of small arms fire around us. Machine gun fire, and that was mostly to the south of us, to our right. And uh, I don't recall that we got a whole lot of it. We did have the artillery fire, but we didn't have much uh, small arms fire in our area. So when you're with these these guys and you're in sort of your own little world up there, how important are the people you're fighting? Uh, you know, they're your buddies, and uh, you didn't want you, you just kind of felt like you didn't ever want to be away from them, didn't want to be out of their sight. You you wanted to be in touch with somebody so that you wouldn't be stranded out there all by yourself. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I remember when we were withdrawing back to the Elsenborn Ridge, that uh, because I was loaded up with penicillin and I, I uh, was not really well and I was having to stop every now and then along the way and I was so worried about uh, whether, you know, keeping up. I didn't want to be separated. Well, it's much the same way. If you had a, a buddy, you wanted to be close to your buddy. Not that he was your blood brother or anything, but he was – you. He was the guy who's going to look out for you, and you were going to look out for him. And uh, so you always had somebody like that. You just had to be close to people who were sharing your experience so that uh, you knew that you were in it together, and that made it easier. How about in terms of the cause, then? In terms of the cause, uh, I, I think in the heat of battle, you're not fighting for the flag or your country or anything you're you're really you're fighting for survival you want to survive and you're going to do whatever it takes uh with honor i mean you, i i didn't we didn't have anybody that turned ran nobody that i that i know of and you were you were going to hold your territory it's just like a, the defense on a football team you weren't going to let those guys get through and uh, so that was uh our main thought, as I recall it. But you didn't think about the fear factor? Yeah, you were afraid. Uh, I mean, that that's always there. Anybody who says they weren't afraid is a fool, I think, because uh, you would do what you had to do, but you were, you were uh, cautious. I remember one time, uh, this was, uh, again, up on the Elsenborn Ridge, and I was in the command post at this particular time. I don't know what it was, but they, an artillery barrage came in, and the first shell must have uh, severed our communication lines. And so the company commander uh, and I went out to see if we could uh, you know, find where the break was. Well, the shells were coming on, and uh, the barrage seemed to be getting heavier, and I can remember pieces of shrapnel buzzing through the air. And at first, I was praying, maybe if I got hit, why, and not too bad, that I might be evacuated. And then my 
quickly as those things one of them plinked off of my helmet i i uh, i was praying that please lord don't let the next one hit me you know you know what i mean you uh you had all kinds of crazy thoughts but i didn't want to get hit how about this idea of you know we've heard about the christmas truce and uh, in world war one when you were there on christmas was there ever a thought of peace on earth goodwill to man i mean different thoughts on that day towards the enemy no I didn't hate anybody over there. I figured those are guys just like me. So you can't hate somebody under those circumstances. What the Nazis were doing, we didn't know anything at that time about what they were doing to the uh, Jews or their prisoners of war uh, or any of that sort of thing, forced labor, slave labor. We didn't, we didn't really know anything about things like that. We knew that those guys were going to protect their turf, and they were going to do their job, and so we had to do ours. And uh, I don't think I don't I don't recall ever thinking maybe we ought to quit fighting and go over there and and shake hands or whatever. I mean, you, the thought never entered my mind. If the thought entered my mind was that if that guy comes toward me. Uh, he's in trouble, and I'm sure they felt the same way, that if we sent a patrol over like we did, they're going to do something about it. So do me a favor, just tell me again then about Christmas. Just give, paint the picture for me on Christmas 1944. Christmas 1944, it seems to me like it was a, uh, if it weren't for the war, it would have been a picture postcard setting. There was a lot of snow, and you could see the woods and the hills, and it uh, was relatively quiet. We did; they did send a message that day, and I'm sure we did too, to bring both sides back to the reality of the situation. And I think that uh, perhaps we had thoughts that maybe, maybe, as I think back on it now. When you first asked me the question, I don't think I had this thought, but I think maybe we thought in terms of maybe uh, wouldn't it be nice to have a peace? At, uh, if we don't hate them and they don't hate us, why are we fighting? We, In fact, the prisoners that we had taken at various times uh, had indicated that to us, you know, that they were just soldiers like we were. They didn't hate us. Now, the SS and people like that were different. We did run into those those people uh, during the Battle of the Bulge and later on as well. But in terms of the celebration? Well, when we found out that we were not going to have a hot meal, I think that kind of took the wind out of everyone's sails. They, uh, we, we were disappointed, and we had a great... Uh, company uh, mess sergeant and staff, they would have done everything they could to get us a meal if it were remotely possible, but the word was that nothing goes up unless it's ammunition. And uh, so, obviously, that's... They did send up K-rations along with the ammunition. So morale on Christmas, would you say there was a lot of homesickness? Was there a lot of were people trying to sing? You know, I don't remember anybody trying to sing. I I don't uh, I don't recall anything more than well. I wonder what the folks back home are doing today, or I wonder what the weather's like there. That sort of thing. We were very conscious about food. Very conscious about uh, warmth, and uh, those. Those things were foremost, and so you wondered if hope everyone back home was doing okay. But we didn't dwell on it. Overall, though, when you look back on those times, even today, this many years later, how vivid? How vivid? Yeah. I'm sure that there's parts of it that I just have put out of my mind for one reason or another because, I, as I said, I can't. I don't have a good sequence of events. I can't remember day one going into day two, into day three, into day four. I just remember things that happened and what day they happened, whether it was early or late. It's hard to uh, put those things into proper order. Uh, 
I uh, the main thing that I think that uh, I thought about the whole war was uh, how we lived through it. It uh, it's a rough life. Said I was raised in Great Bend, Kansas, and I grew up in the Battle of the Bulge. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.